This is the Risky Mix podcast, where we speak with those people changing the mix in the insurance industry. Sharing their personal journeys, their inspirational stories, and answering the questions we all want answered. You're listening to Raj and Katie. We really hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Okay, so today on the Risky Mix podcast, we're joined by Emily Shaw formerly a change project manager in the insurance sector, she now heads up a business culture consultancy called Making Decent Money. Having experienced some of the negative aspects of the Lloyds culture, Emily set up the consultancy to help businesses create healthy, awesome business cultures so people can work in highly productive environments, prejudice-free, and have some fun along the way. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Risky Mix podcast, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. So let's jump in then. Um, We like to always ask a personal question of our guests when they join us, um, just so our listeners get to know you a little bit better. So perhaps you can choose three words to describe yourself. Um, Actually, I was wondering if you would mind if I answered that question with kind of a story actually about myself. Sure. Go for it. We love a story. (laughs) So my mum told me this story not so long ago and um, it really made me laugh and it really kind of, I think, encapsulates who I am. So. I was four years old when I went to school. I'm a summer baby, so I was very young for my year. And um, four years old, first day at school, I came back and uh, my mum said to me, how was your first day at school, Emily? And I was full of indignation. I said, mum, they they made us line up. They made us stand in a line. (laughs) And my mum was like, oh, God, what's wrong with this child? (laughs) I was just, I I could not wrap my head around the fact that this weird thing that they, everybody else just like accepted and was like, yeah, cool. I'll do that. I'll stand in a line. All these other like normal four-year-olds. But I just, it was illogical to me and it made no sense to me. So I just, I, I didn't understand that I wasn't like a rebellious child or anything like that, but I just could not understand the point of lining up. And, you know, eventually I did learn to line up, but that is something that keeps coming up throughout my life is this idea that everybody just kind of does something and I go, oh, wait, what? Hang on. What, why are we all doing this again? Okay. Nice. So like, I feel bad for my mum, but you know. <laughs> Do you kind of inquisitive then? You like to ask the why questions, would you say? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. not just because I'm being difficult, just because I gen- if I don't understand something, I don't really see why everybody would just go along with it. Sure. Yes, great. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, thank thank you for sharing. Um, Okay, so Raj and I would love to know more about your career journey then. Um, You know, why you entered insurance uh, and your kind of career path. And we know you worked at Lloyd's, so, you know, the career path through there would be be great to hear more about. So I managed to make it through my second day at school. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Good. Good start. (laughs) Um, Continued on, got my degree, got my master's. um, And then in my 20s, I did what I think a lot of people do, which is just kind of bounce around Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of different jobs, kind of trying to find something that you like. I mean, I worked in fashion houses. I worked for the Queen's lingerie company. Like I worked for a a whole different array of companies. And then I found project management by accident. And I really, really liked it. I just loved that mix of it being um, super organized, but also really about people and having to understand people and kind of and mix those two together. Um, I really, really liked that. Um, so I went into project management and kind of continued in there. And I tended to go through um, working on large change programs with a people impact. 
So lots of mm-hmm. mergers and acquisitions, um, shared service moves, um, HR transformations, things like that. Um, but one of the things that really interested me throughout my career is in my kind of uh, mid to late 20s, I kind of noticed a shift in the way that I was treated in my career. And I think two things happened at that time in my life. I'd started to get a bit more senior, which mm-hmm. um, made a difference. And also, I, um, I used to be obese. When I, in my early 20s, I was a size 22, um, just to kind of give, give you some reference. And that in itself is neither a good nor bad thing. But I had experienced the world of work as somebody who did not fit that classic western idea of what is attractive mm-hmm. now whether or not that's right that's like a whole nother podcast but um you know for the time being i didn't fit the ideal of what what a kind of attractive person looked like and then i lost a lot of weight and i went down to kind of a size 10 12 and the way that i was treated suddenly i did fit that typical western idea of what it is to be attractive and the way i was treated changed and at the time I wasn't really sure if that was you know the reason or not it was quite gradual but I I did notice a difference and what I'd started to notice was I could kind of use that and I hadn't thought about it I wasn't proactively thinking oh if I sexualize myself in a certain way then that will be beneficial for my career but what I did notice was if I was complicit in this idea of being not just a project manager, but an attractive female project manager, then my career seemed a lot easier. So when you say, sorry, sorry, Emily, when you say that um, the way that you were perceived and, um, and treated changed, changed, what were the changes in particular that you, that you saw happen? They were very subtle. Mm -hmm. It was things like, uh, my m- older male colleagues were s- kind of more willing to listen to me, to give me time to um, respond to me. They kind of paid more attention to me than um, I had experienced before when I looked very different. And I sort of became complicit in that, what I kind of now see as objectification. Mm-hmm. I came complicit in that because I realized that, all oh, right, so these are senior people who I need to be able to influence to be able to do my job better, to learn, to move through my career. So if I do, it was just that idea of if I do X, I get Y. Mm, yeah. So if I wear a slightly tighter dress or wear heels or, you know, at that time I had hair extensions as well, you know, if I look this way, if I do X, then I get Y. My life is easier. My career path mm. is clearer. Right. I get access to people that I wouldn't normally get access to before. I found there right. was a, this like, now I see it as quite kind of gross, but at the time there was a definite link between how tight my dress was that I wore and how able I was to influence senior wow. people. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, this is my story, me telling it kind of now, 10 years yeah. later, but then yeah. I wasn't kind of thinking like that. I was thinking, yeah. right. You know, I have observed that my choices are be objectified or ignored, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's not, and this is absolutely 100% not about blaming women for being objectified or the way that they are treated or anything like that. All it is, is an observation that we live in a world where it's very, very, very hard to push Mm. against the norm. We're conditioned Mm. to behave like this. And even men are conditioned to react 
to us. Like, you know, yes. well, yeah, exactly. I think yeah. it's really interesting is that that co- cause and effect, right? So, I mean, even if it's completely unconscious, if yeah. we, uh, you know, if we do this, we get, we get that um, and we just sort of replay those patterns. It's, quite difficult and it sort of takes someone like that little four-year-old girl who says I'm not going to get in a line because I don't see the point (laughs) to to really say actually what why is this happening and start to sort of challenge that that I guess the cause and the reasons for the cause I think you're absolutely right and it's really interesting because as I you know as I was talking there and talking about that I realized that I I had learned to line up again Mm. yeah yeah you know, as a four-year-old, you're taught you stand in a line and you're you're good, or you get in trouble if you don't do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, effectively, I'd I'd replayed that behaviour and I'd learned to get in line again. So, so how? Um, so you kind of saw this. If I do A, I get B, and and you were kind of doing that. And I mean, how long did that last for? And and what I guess what were the kind of outcomes of doing that? Obviously, you said you kind of got noticed um, a little bit more and, and men were giving you a bit more time or, or colleagues were giving you a bit more time than perhaps they had done before. Was it all positive uh, that, that came out of that? Or, you know, tell us a bit more about that. At the time, I thought it was. Um, but then as I got more senior and it carried on, I kind of started to realise how toxic that kind of thinking is and how easy it is to just kind of wander into that Mm. um uh, but you know at the time I just thought yeah this is great like um I'm doing well in my career I'm moving forward I'm moving on um and I was I was kind of really happy with that I think one of the turning points actually was um when I moved to Lloyd's Mm -hmm. um so I started at Lloyd's in June 2017 and I was on a change program again. And for the most part, I loved it. Like the London yeah. market is bonkers, <laughs> brilliant and insane and steeped in history. And, yeah. it, you know, it's just like, it's a place like no other. And mm-hmm. I put my heart and soul into that job. I worked so hard and I met some incredible people mm-hmm. when I was working there. Um, and I'll kind of, I'll always look back at my time at Lloyd's really fondly. But, um, a couple of years, I was there for almost three years, um, and a couple of years in, so March 2019, an article came out in Bloomberg Business Week. It was, it was written by Gavin Finch, and the title of the article was Old Daytime Drinking, Sexual Harassing Ways Are Thriving at Lloyd's. Mm-hmm. And I can't comment on the content of that article but what I can say is that I wasn't surprised when that article came out. Mm-hmm. Okay. One of the quotes from the article says, um, there's a deep-seated culture of sexual harassment, the full appalling range from inappropriate remarks to unwanted touching to sexual assault. So that wow. was one of the, um, the lines that was kind of pulled out and used quite a lot in the, um, in the press. And obviously there was a huge kind of fallout from this. And, I yeah I I wasn't surprised when that article came out and like I said before it's not because Lloyd's is full of bad people because I had met some great people there but it is um sometimes a difficult place to work if you are a woman and that's I don't think that's breaking any confidences or anything I think that's you know become quite common knowledge Mm -hmm. um and my experience at Lloyd's was 
the the line in the article that talks about inappropriate remarks and unwanted touching that especially kind of hit home with me and it's really interesting actually because my experience a lot of times people would say to me why don't you speak up why don't you say something why don't you speak up and there's and that happens a lot actually there's this whole idea of speaking up and you should get people to speak up and that's how you address these problems and that's how you solve these problems mm. but actually i think that we really need to question this idea of speaking up and mm. understand a bit more about it because from my point of view in in those times when somebody would kind of put their hand on my hip or put their hand on my arm or my leg or my hand or kind of touch me in a in a way that I didn't think was appropriate um there's there's lots of reasons why you don't speak up and I used to get really cross about that I used to think why didn't I speak up why didn't I say something like you know I am by my nature a girl that is happy to cause a scene like that's <laughs> you know my you know I'm not a shy person but why didn't I do it and I would yeah. grind and grind on it for like literally months I would think about this yeah um, and then it kind of started to slowly come to me. And I think there's two reasons why the, the speak up idea is problematic. And I'm not in any way, I should say, saying that people that have the bravery to speak up straight away, great, brilliant, absolutely love that. And people who have spoken up, you know, that is fantastic. But not everybody does. And in my personal experience, you know, this isn't the answer, but this is my answer to why speaking up is so difficult. Um, and the two parts to it are kind of in that moment inside you. When somebody puts their hand on you in a, in a way that you don't like and that isn't appropriate, there's a physical impact on you that no, guys don't necessarily, I'm not saying all men, but men don't necessarily understand this um, if they haven't experienced it themselves. And when someone puts their hand on you, you get that moment where your body just go physiologically, your body just goes into kind of survival mode. Mm. Right. and you just go oh god oh right you know it's that kind of fight or flight thing okay. where your body just goes stay alive stay alive stay alive Some, someone has like come into your personal space and it's horrible and you don't know how this is going to end so yeah. like just freeze and you know stay alive yeah and actually when you go into fight or flight part of the physiological thing that happen to you is all the blood that comes from the kind of higher part of your brain that you need the higher functioning part of your brain it all kind of disappears and goes to your quads ready to run away which is yeah. great if you know you're a caveman but <laughs> office you can't go anywhere imagining <laughs> imagining people sort of running down the office <laughs> heels like <laughs> insane bolt speeds it's just yeah it's incredible exactly, exactly but you kind of you need that that part that higher functioning part of your brain in that moment to be able to have that difficult conversation with someone but your yeah. body goes completely the other way and goes no 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 can't do that so there's that kind of physical moment yeah where it makes it really really difficult to actually say something in that moment yeah because you're not in that moment like i am now where i could speak in a quite articulate way you're in that moment where you're going oh god just stay alive sure. and that might sound dramatic but if you know you know and mm -hmm. if you don't know listen <laughs> it's not that dramatic when you're in the moment. <laughs> um, and, and people said to me oh well why don't you speak up after them mm -hmm. that's people's normal response mm -hmm. oh just say something after mm -hmm. but again here's the thing like something when something like that happens to you it's it's quite whether it's right or wrong you sometimes feel some shame from that it's a shameful experience and right. it's an undignified thing that's happened to you and it's a humiliating thing that's happened to you so when someone says, why don't you just say something the next day? You're asking courage of a victim. You're asking for someone to relive something 
that is shameful and undignified and humiliating. And not only that, but you're asking them to take this huge interpersonal risk by telling someone and not necessarily knowing what the outcome could be. I mean, you know, we are taught as women often that speaking up, saying something to somebody is a huge interpersonal risk and it often doesn't pay off. You get ridiculed, you get accused of lying you know we have learned through our culture that actually it is a really really high risk thing to do Mm. so you're in a kind of disadvantage point where you're having to admit something shameful which no one wants to do nobody likes shame we all you know we all hide from that and run away from that because that's horrible but then you have this massive interpersonal risk with it as well so i think that that's kind of that was the one of the main reasons i didn't speak up And the second main reason was about this kind of this idea of I didn't have the language and I didn't feel I had the permission. I hadn't seen anyone else speak up. I hadn't, I didn't feel like I was in an environment, in a culture where I could safely put my hand up and go, this is, this is happening and it's not cool without me worrying that it was going to be kind of career limiting. Mm -hmm. Right. Or, you know, I hadn't seen anyone else do it. Yeah. And also we kind of, we assimilate with the behavior that's around us. So other people have seen this happen and they kind of hadn't, you know, hadn't said hadn't done, yeah. you know, hadn't particularly done anything. So you kind right. of assimilate that. You go, all oh, right, this every, you don't consciously do it, but you subconsciously go, all oh, right, this, you know, nobody else is, is standing up. So, oh, gosh, so yeah. Yeah. yeah, that makes yeah. it even harder. Um, yeah. And once again, I'd learn to line up. Mm. yeah yeah so it goes against really yeah. what your values are like your your value set is not is not to do that but you you were kind of conforming because you didn't really i suppose by the sounds of it have the role models around you who were showing that actually you should stand up for stuff like that and i mean have, have things from from your kind of knowledge have, have things changed a bit in lloyd's are there now you know women standing up against this type of thing or or even on, on top of that is is there a move towards creating a culture whereby um, there's a safe space for, for women and other people to, to speak up and, and feel like they aren't jeopardising themselves? I think that that's a really kind of meaningful question, Raj, because there have always been women that have spoken up. You know, I don't want to in any way kind of diminish the women who have spoken up and, and worked hard and set up networks. And, you know, there's there's lots and lots of women who are really trying and there's lots of men as well who are, you know, on board and want to make that change and see that gender parity benefits everybody. But I think one of the problems, not just at Lloyd's kind of in general is that we don't have these environments where we can have these conversations. Mm -hmm. We don't set up, we try and, you know, naturally we try and kind of shy away from this stuff because we're right. People say to me so often, especially men, say to me, I am really worried about saying the wrong thing. Right. And that theme comes up again and again. And this is not just about gender. Mm. It's every kind of intersection mm. as well between that. You know, people are scared to say the wrong thing about race. They're scared to say the wrong thing about disability, sexuality, gender, age. You know, there's a hot, people are just so scared to say the wrong thing that they don't say anything at all. Right. So if you yeah. do what you always did, you'll get what you always got yeah and you know i i do genuinely believe that the idea of really starting to make meaningful change in these areas is about creating these environments where people can have these conversations is that sort of the the thinking that led you to create uh making decent money then and and do what you're doing can you tell us a little bit about that absolutely 100 percent. i kind of i realized at lloyd's that 
the generation before me, the generation of women before me had worked so hard for me to even be allowed to work at Lloyd's. Mm. And um, it was my job to give the next generation of women a fighting chance. Like I needed that experience I'd had, that really difficult experience about trying to make my way through understanding why I didn't speak up. I needed that experience to mean something. And making decent money was the result of that. That was the kind of meaning it brought about because I do kind of genuinely believe and the, the research backs it up as well. And every experience I've had in all kinds of different cultures, you know, it all seems to fit that a healthy environment where people feel confident to do what is right and challenge what is wrong will ultimately be what helps us not just create this change in the kind of diversity way but a huge shift in business and it's the kind of shift that I feel like we really need to make Mm -hmm. it's just that that kind of nasty idea of the kind of the business of the 80s that kind of Milton Friedman idea that the purpose of a business is to maximize shareholder value within the bounds of the law Mm. That's, that's not the right way to be doing no. this. <laughs> no, no, um, no. We're moving away from that. <laughs> exactly, and you know, millennials like as much as people like to laugh at them, and they're kind of them us and our kind of <laughs> av- avocado ways. <laughs> Smashed avocado. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, millennials want to work for businesses that you know care about the communities in which they operate, and they have a sense of social consciousness, and they have. They make purposeful profits. You know, that's what people want. That's how you're going to, you know, that's how you're going to not only create a different world, but also move business forward because millennials are now at that level where we're kind of leadership age. Yeah. Mm. So the old ways of doing business won't work anymore because millennials aren't interested in that. But there's kind of three things that any business can do, which helps with their culture, helps with better decision-making, better relationships, better productivity and better problem-solving. And it's, split them into like three easy steps you need to set the scene eat sleep values repeat and then bring everything to the table so when you set the scene what's the purpose of your business what you're trying to achieve does everybody know that Mm -hmm. have you articulated it is everybody pulling in the same direction because it sounds like a really simple thing but if you don't articulate it then there's a risk that the the common interest in any business will be self-interest Mm. and that means you're not all going to be pulling in the same direction so it's, it's a really simple thing it's really basic it takes a little bit of work to get it right but if you know what your purpose is if you know why you do business and everybody else knows that as well then everybody will pull in the same direction and it makes a business much more efficient the idea of eat sleep values repeat is that your values are kind of the dna of your business they're like the rules that dictate the characteristics of your business and they also capture what's brilliant about your business and try and keep out the stuff that isn't great or you know minimize that and the thing that's really important about your values I mean lots of businesses write them on their website and forget about them and that's not a great way to do things um but you kind of that's why you need to eat sleep values repeat with your business it's the idea that this is a common thread it goes for everyone. And that's especially important at the moment when lots of people are working from home, you're not with your colleagues. Mm. Sure. What is that common thread that pulls you all together that, you know, when you're sitting in your kitchen or staring out the window and you have been for like four hours and you've gone a bit bonkers, you know, <laughs> re- you know, if you, if you remember those values and you know why you're all doing this and why you're all in it together, then it really yeah. makes a difference. And that common thread is what creates that sense of community I actually have a question on that, Emily, on around values, because mm-hmm. I suppose, you know, 
a lot of companies set their values and as I say they might write them on the website they might write them on the wall in the office and, and they might say that that's what you know that's what they value but mm-hmm. I mean how important do you think that it is for for businesses who who either want to or, or need to kind of change their culture do you think it's important for them to almost identify what values they're living by at that point in time and kind of acknowledging okay we might have these values here that actually we're not too happy with and almost putting steps in place to to change those and, and then create a new value set like does that make sense is, is that kind of how how they could work with that that is a hundred percent how you need to do the process you need to look okay. at where you are now um what is great about what you have now what are the problems that you have now and then you need to define probably depending on the size of your business um, and where you want to get to and where you are probably only between three and five values Okay. I, think, I think Amazon has 14 and you know a lot of the leadership team can just reel those off and that's um, kind mm. of scary and I wouldn't necessarily say 14 I can't remember 14 of anything <laughs> um, but you know three to five values that just dictate how you show up mm. every day mm. absolutely yeah. so, so we've kind of we, we've covered the so your top two tips so far so mm-hmm. we had set the scene think about you know your business purpose and your values and then we you gave the advice of eat sleep values repeat is your second point what's the third point then what do businesses need to uh, think about this is a this is a tough one this is where you bring everything to the table okay Um, so this is where you this is where it's most important that you leave without inhibition because this is going to be the tough stuff that you're going to get wrong and it's going to be messy Mm -hmm. this is where you give but you know, that's where the best stuff comes from. This is where you try and teach people the, give them the language, the permission and the skills to have difficult conversations, to give each other feedback, to receive feedback, to challenge things, to put their hands up and say they made a mistake. This is that part, that really human part where you have to acknowledge that people are human and be okay with it and be comfortable with it and kind of dive into that, that messiness. That's such good advice, Emily. I, I guess it's, um, yeah, it might seem quite scary, mightn't it, for people who've not really done that before and had those kind of really human conversations about feedback and how it makes you feel and things like that. That's, that can be quite daunting. And I guess that's a big, big shift. But I agree that we, we absolutely have to get to that point where everyone can share openly and we value feedback. We take it on board and, and that's a positive thing. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your, your kind of three pieces of advice. I think we have sadly run out of time this morning. Um, it's been so lovely talking to you and hearing about your journey. And thank, thank you for sharing your story um, and being, you know, very kind of open about it. Um, it's been great chatting. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you, Raj. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like to get in touch, you can do so via our Twitter account, at Risky Mix. We'd love to hear your thoughts and questions. And if you know any inspirational women in the industry who you think would be great for the Risky Mix podcast, get in touch. See you next week.